It's June 4th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at, the, at a few local tech and science stories and spend a little time unpacking what Apple announced this week on its Worldwide Developers Conference. Then, we have Julius Paolo from UH Outreach College and, of course, Jenna Komatsu, and they're both here to talk about science in action. Finally, we'll explore new technologies in agriculture with Benny Ron and Kerry Kakazu. We'd, of course, love your questions and thoughts as part of that conversation. Be ready to call in our tweet, but first, the headlines. Hours ago, NASA postponed for a second time the scheduled test launch of a new landing system in the skies over Kauai. Originally set to take place yesterday at the Pacific Missile Range facility, the science agency passed on a second launch window today, again due to weather conditions. The test vehicle, called the Low Density Supersonic Decelerator, or LDSD, looks very much like a flying saucer. Its goal is to help larger payloads drop into extraterrestrial atmospheres to decelerate quickly and land safely. The engineering shakeout flight calls for the LDSD to be lifted 120,000 feet up by a helium balloon that's about the size of the Rose Bowl Stadium. Then it will be dropped from the balloon only to have rockets fire and push the vehicle higher up into the stratosphere. After topping out at Mach 4, reaching 180,000 feet, NASA will then test various methods of slowing the vehicle's descent back to the surface. The goal is to test technologies to safely land a two-ton payload with longer-term hopes of delivering payloads of 20 to 30 tons. This test and several more planned for the month ahead will approximate the delivery of a large payload to the surface of Mars, and it's part of a NASA's uh, evolvable Mars campaign. By next year, the agency will have two additional test vehicles to work with. Project manager Mark Adler and uh, with you, uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory said in a statement, after years of imagination, engineering, and hard work, we soon will get to see our Kiki Oka Honua, our boy from Earth, show his us its stuff of flying uh, if our flying saucer hits the speed and altitude targets it will be a great day and of course you know the whole idea is that this is a much larger payload that they're trying to land you know curiosity evidently is uh, much smaller than what they're expecting to take to Mars. Right absolutely and uh, basically they say flying saucer it's a 6 meter diameter inflatable aerodynamic decelerator they basically describe it as an inflatable donut mm. and uh, it's going to be deployed at that high altitude bring the speed down to Mach 2.5 and then use a supersonic parachute still the largest supersonic parachute ever to bring it to a speed that's safe enough to touch down. I would love to see this. Yeah, there's going to be live coverage on NASA TV. There's a lot of pictures already on Flickr of it. You might have seen it in the paper as Mm -hmm. well. It is quite a sight to behold. Well, in other space news, researchers at the University of Hawaii announced last week that they have conducted a comprehensive survey of moon rocks to reveal more hints about how water came to be part of the moon's composition and how it's distributed across its surface as well as in the moon's interior. Moon water is not liquid water, of course, but instead trapped in volcanic glasses or chemically bound into mineral grains that are found in lunar rocks. But rocks from some areas across and within the moon have different quantities of water with different compositions. Well, Catherine Robertson, lead author of the study and a graduate assistant at the UH School of Ocean and Earth Sciences and Technology, conducted a survey with Jeffrey Taylor, a professor um, at the University Institute of Geophysics and Planetology. They compiled water measurements from lunar samples performed by colleagues from around the world as well as their own. They measured hydrogen and its isotope deuterium, deuterium, 
used the ratio to determine the source of the water and map magmatic processes inside the moon. The researchers say that the source of the moon's water has important implications for learning about the origins of water on Earth, which is vital for life. Uh, Either water reached the moon via the massive impact with Earth that created it, or it was added to the moon later by comets or asteroids. The first theory is more widely held, but this survey helps uncover many new layers of information. Robinson said in a statement, quote, Our work is surprising because it shows that lunar formation and accretion were more complex than previous. Thought. You know, I, I think this uh, research into the origin of water, uh, whether it be on Earth or the moon or even Mars, I think is fascinating because, uh, you know, I've never really thought about it. I always assumed that water was here. And uh, when you think about it, if, you know, this is a, a, a sort of a massive planet of, of um, erupting magma, where'd the water come from? And now it starts to, you know, make sense if water perhaps was maybe delivered by a comet or, you know, maybe in some way the uh, evolutionary process. And then, of course, you know, is the moon part of the Earth? And I think, you know, that's the theory, right? That it shares some composition background. And, you know, it's for decades, of course, the assumption has been there's very little water on the moon, if not any. Um, There was a conference in Kona in 1984 called the Origin of the Moon Conference, and they talked a lot about this. It was only until we looked at uh, lunar samples from 2008 that we confirmed that there was water in some form Mm -hmm. on the moon. So it's still very early days for this research, and I think it's great that our researchers here in Hawaii are helping to shed more light on that. Well, here's a couple of quick hits before we get to Apple's announcement on Monday. First, I wanted to let you know about six new apps designed to help Hawaii residents become better informed about the election process. Common Cause Hawaii, in partnership with our organization, Hawaii Open Data, stage a civic accelerator, a series of events, to enlist developers and engage citizens to harness raw public data to make it more useful in everyday life. The apps include candidate filing information, campaign spending data, a map of voting precincts. Um, there's also Kokioke.org and Polydex Hawaii, which are tools to dig deeper into who is contributing money to which campaigns. To check them out, you can go to civic.celerator.org slash apps, or if that's a long link, you can just visit our site later tonight at bitemarkscafe.org. You know, one of the uh, real basic, simple things that you could do with some of these apps is go to your precinct or where your area where you live, and you can find out who's actually running. And, you know, this is something that you would think is readily available, but... It's actually, pretty hard, actually. Yeah. I remember trying to find the insert in the paper with the with all of the names and mm-hmm. trying to figure out where I am. So I think these apps are great, and good work to you in shepherding this project through. Yeah. Secondly, we also wanted to talk a little bit about Apple's announcements at the annual Worldwide Developers Conference, which took place, or is actually taking place this week uh, in San Francisco. The big keynote, though, was on Monday, and while there was no new hardware announced, there was a flood of news regarding the company's software for both its desktops and laptops, as well as its iPhones and iPads. And uh, as a geek, I was certainly glued to it. Um, Any takeaways for you, Bert? Well, you know, I did watch the entire keynote, and I thought overall it was, not, you know, very entertaining. Let me let me just sort of get that out because I thought it was very entertaining. There were some very uh, humorous points. One of one of the uh, points that really kind of cracked me up was the fact that uh, when they were talking about getting the name for the next OS um, X version, right? I think the previous one is Mavericks, and they they said that uh, you know they went to different cities and they were trying to figure out if that city really kind of fit the the sort of culture. Right, names of, of places in California. Yeah, and then so they, they showed this map and they were landing in a couple of spots and they ended up in weed. So they thought maybe 
OSX Weed might be the next one. Right, and uh, they did not choose Weed, although oh. OSX Weed was then trending on Twitter. But in any case, it's called OSX uh, Yosemite, mm-hmm. and it's, it is the next version of, of uh, OSX for laptops and computers. But really what they were doing is, one, just like how iOS 7 redesigned the apps or the look and feel of phones and iPads, um, OSX Yosemite is kind of giving a new look to your computer, your desktop apps, your Macintosh apps. But key, I think, to what they're doing in it is something they're calling continuity so that the interaction between your mobile devices, your iPads and your iPhones, and your computers at home or in your lap um, are almost seamless. In fact, it's got getting to the point where you can get a text message on your computer. You can answer a phone call on your computer, even though people think they're dialing your phone. You could be upstairs on, on uh, lying in bed with your computer and answer the phone there. So some really interesting ways to combine those two things. Yeah, you know, and uh, they're trying to, I guess, create uh, a better, uh, a seamless inter. Um, integration between the platforms and show that there's a whole ecosystem that is representative of Apple. And they're doing, I think, a really good job. Now, the fact that they didn't have any hardware, I think, uh, is is really not important because the software announcements as a result of this uh, conference and the keynote, I think, were, were really quantum leaps above any other keynote that I've yeah, ever Yeah, it's fascinating. Saw. A lot of the, the, the geeks I know, the developers I know, th- think that this is one of the best keynotes in history, but most of the people who are pundits, the, the people on TV, the talking heads, well, they're the like... Well, the ones waiting for the iWatch or whatever, Yeah, right? there's no watch, there's no TV, well, forget it. Apple is clearly doomed, but I think what they're doing is laying the groundwork for that. They had a couple of platforms they talked about, HealthKit and HomeKit, and I think this is really key to what you're saying. Instead of building their own television or building their own uh, thermostat or building mm-hmm. their own uh, blood pressure monitor. They're creating a platform ac- uh, across which all of these different devices from different manufacturers, Philips or whatever, right. you know, so, they can interact with each other and, and you can control your house with your phone, even though you might have a Philips light bulb, you might have a, uh, a Kenmore stove, you know, they can all use this platform to communicate. Well, so that seems to be the kind of the big difference between iOS 7 and iOS 8, because iOS 7 was a visual enhancement. So there were a lot of nice icons and, you know, kind of a new way of presenting the, uh, you know, the display on the iPhone. But in iOS 8, there was all this stuff in sort of the background, you know, the software developer kit, what you're talking about with with HealthKit and HomeKit. All of that is part of the um, underlying programming architecture that allows programmers and developers to create really cool applications. And people are saying that this is really a new Apple because they've made their hardware much more accessible. Right. Instead of being as closed as they were. Um, and in addition, I mean, they, they came out with a new programming language. I'm still trying to learn mm-hmm, um, Objective-C mm-hmm. and what they did is they said, we've got a new programming language. Who and needs Objective-C? Right. Well, so right. are you going to learn <laughs> Swift? I'm going to learn Objective-C until Swift is officially out and then I might change gears. But I thought that was big news for nerds. Mm-hmm. And for me, I have to say, finally in closing, as a parent, the thing that they talked about on the iOS side that I loved was the family sharing features because right now all of my kids have my old iPhones and stuff and they come to me because I won't let them buy anything on the iTunes app store so I have to type in my password for all of them to get the apps and it's hard to figure out where everything is with the new family sharing feature if your family has all these different devices you can still consolidate control to you so I could be at work and my phone will go beep your son Alex wants to buy this app yes or no Mm -hmm. and uh, I can say yes or I can say 
not now. I like that it says not now. It's not a hard no. Maybe we'll talk when mm-hmm. I get home. But I mean that kind of control and being able to share apps and share media will be revolutionary, I think, if you have more than one device in your so house. So is that, is that going to be kind of a little cultural change for your kids in terms of how they might use uh, uh, the buying capability off your iPhone? Well, you know, the way a lot of people try to get around this is they use the same account on all the devices. Mm-hmm. But when you do that, if your son is on your account and he buys a rap album, next thing you know, you've got a rap album on your phone. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this way, everybody gets their own accounts, but you can still control whether or not they can buy. And I think that's a much yeah, better system. Great stuff. I mean, you know, I think uh, this whole uh, new generation that Apple is encouraging is going to be something that we're going to be talking about for a long time. Absolutely. And now joining us is Julius Paolo from the UH uh, Outreach College and also joining us is Jenna Komatsu, and they're here to tell us about the summer program called Science in Action. Welcome to the show, Julius and Jenna. Thank you. It's Thanks. good to be here. Bert now, Ryan. Jenna, why don't you tell us first about this program specifically, Science in Action. It's at the UH Outreach College, but it's not directed specifically at college students? Correct. Science in Action is a program for high school students, anyone who's been in grades 9 through 12 this past academic year. And um, it's a brand new program. This is only the second year we're running it. Mm, okay. So um, the idea behind Science in Action is to give high school students an opportunity to be exposed to various uh, future careers and um, so that they, they just get come for a two-week program and get a a taste of what it would be like to be a a botanist or a marine microbiologist Mm -hmm. or a computer programmer. Uh, It also gives them a chance to get exposure to the college environment and take advantage of the great resources we have at UH Manoa. Mm -hmm. And they uh, get to interact with students from all over the state during that program. Great. So so it's kind of a a two-week intensive program just to give them a, a sense of the, the world that they're coming into, possibly. Exactly. And it, it's very important to us that it's a lot of fun, so it's very hands-on learning. Mm-hmm. No pressure of a grade. It's just uh, enjoy the experience of being there. Uh-huh. And, and, and Julius, so yes. what is it that uh, you're doing with regard to Science in Action? Okay, my course is uh, entitled Mapping the Outdoors Introduction to Field Cartography. Oh. So I'm tailoring this program after uh, one of my classes, Geography uh, Field Mapping, which is a 400-level course, actually, which I am tailoring to high school students. So it's going to have two phases. The first phase is just um, hands-on outdoors mapping, um, grassroots uh, without technology because, as you know, um, not all data can be downloaded from the internet now. Sometimes you have to collect your own data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not feasible to be using the high-tech devices like GPS, especially under the jungle when there's no signal. So I'm starting it off from the basic mapping, like just using your footsteps, how long is your footsteps, measuring that, and getting a gauge of like uh, basically mapping a building using your footsteps. And maybe uh, then I'm going to transition to um, tape measure. Uh, basically, uh, using compasses with this and uh, what's the advantages, disadvantages mm-hmm. of using this technology. And then the second half, on the second week, I'm transitioning over to more like a computer-based uh, mapping software, um, GIS, uh, Geographic mm. Information Systems. Um, basically, I'm trying to uh, integrate the two. So like um, the more hands-on type uh, data collection and then transforming that into this uh, computer mm-hmm. software, which is actually not just tied into geography. Um, other courses or other majors actually teach GIS too. Um, mm-hmm. Geology uses it. Um, Enrom, Natural Resources and Environmental Management. Um, the planning department, uh, urban planning uses it. And actually, uh, my current work right now at um, 
I'm working under the architecture building at the Environmental Research and Design Lab in support of the planning office, and we're using GIS um, to as a check for uh, the models of the buildings that they're doing. And with GIS, actually, can make a lot of base maps with it. It's can be either super simple or super advanced program, and it's not just catered to um, one course or one major. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you can use it different majors too. Well, in the, the jobs I've had, in two of the four jobs I've had, um, GIS was part of it, you know, mm-hmm. dealing with that kind of mapping. And um, I like how you're using, starting with your feet and paper maps and creating things that way and really kind of bridging the real world with that virtual world. Now, mm-hmm. um, your college, uh, you're in college and working with college programs. Have you worked with high school students before? Has that been, or is this something new for you? Uh, with high school students, yes, this is going to be a first for me, um, working with them in a college setting. Um, I work with college students, mm-hmm. so um, part of the pro- or the uh, part of the maybe not problem, but uh, challenge. Challenge. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The challenge is uh, catering it to um, high school level mm-hmm. learning while still having giving them the experience of uh, a college. Experience. Now, you said the second half of the uh, second part of the class is going to be more. Uh, are, are there tech elements that you're going to introduce? Like, you know, as as a couple of geeks, I mean, we're always carrying around our iPhones. I mean, there's all kinds of things that will map out your run or map out your hike or map out your mm-hmm. walking. Uh, you, you know, in in the course of a day, are you going to be using any of those tools to help? You know, sort of build maps. Mm, right now, it's still tentative. On uh, it's still um, I might change it uh, mm-hmm. based on uh, class um, interest. But maybe I'll have him carry just around the GPS, maybe starting from the very first day, have him carry it around and then plotting it in the next week, mm-hmm. see how mm-hmm. it looks like on the map. And basically uh, like, um, comparing it, is this actually the route they took? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't it look accurate? You know? And then going into how you know, satellites and buildings can affect um, GPS, mm-hmm. which... Everybody thinks it's super accurate, but right. no, it's like dependent on so much uh, factors. Well, um, so I mean, I'm, I'm I'm excited as a parent of a soon to be college student. I'm glad that there are cartography, cartography classes. I'm a sucker for maps and mm-hmm. geolocation and stuff like that. Is definitely a passion of mine. Um, broadly speaking, um, what are some of the other courses that some of your fellow uh, instructors will be teaching? Uh, I think Jenna can. Well, uh, Jenna, okay. sure. the other ten. Yeah. Um, marine microbial ecology. Uh, marine resource economics, field botany, computer programming, uh, a natural uh, managing natural resources from Malka to Makai. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we have a medical diagnosis and treatment class running out at Jabsem, which that's a returning class. It's uh, very popular. Last year, all of the students who went through the program just raved. As long as their parents, they were they had a great time and they found a lot of value in the program. And um, the majority of our instructors do have experience with high school students, um, and we found that the students relate very well to graduate students. We mm-hmm. have a mix of grad students and faculty. In Julius's case, can you remind me, what school did you graduate from? Uh, high school? Yeah. I graduated from Waipao High School. Oh, Waipao. So, yes, yeah. we have a local boy mm-hmm. at the grad student level, and part of the program is a ask the instructors to talk about the their career path mm-hmm. and the education path. And I think it's going to be great for our high school students to see a role model in Julius here. <laughs> so I tell agree. us, where can we find more information? When does this program start? Uh, Julius's class begins on June 30th. June 30th, yes. The okay. first classes, the first uh, handful of them actually begin June 16th. Oh. There's still time to register, okay. though. Just visit, uh, visit www.summer.hawaii.edu. 
and click on the slipper for high school students, and you'll see our different summer opportunities for high school students. Super. We'll put it up on our show notes. Sounds great. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, uh, both uh, you, Julius, and Jenna. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, and uh, we're going to. T- that's what's been happening sh- this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Benny Ron and Carrie Kakazu. And of course, is there the sustainable sustainability sustainability model for these non traditional farming methods like hydroponics and aquaponics? Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. So feel free to give us a call. That number is nine four one three six eight nine or toll free from the neighbor islands. You can reach us at one eight seven seven. Nine four one three six eight nine. Of course, we love Twitter. You can tweet us there. Bert's at Bite Marks, and I'm at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Seventy-two years ago this week, luck, daring, and leadership changed the course of the Pacific War for good at the Battle of Midway. We'll hear about it from Pacific Aviation Museum historian Burl Burlingame. As the conversation comes to you from Oahu and Kauai, tomorrow morning at 8. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Peet, author of Gentle Action, Bringing Creative Change to a Turbulent World. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how the best of intentions can go wrong and how you can make a positive change in your world. Sunday morning at 11. Well, welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Benny Ron and Kerry Kakazu. Benny is a specialist over at the Department of uh, Human Nutrition, Food, and Animal Sciences, College of Tropical Agriculture and Humans, uh, Human Resources. Kerry, meanwhile, is the pioneer here in Hawaii for vertical farming. And previously, he was the president and CEO at Hawaii Academy of Science and the special assistant of the UH Cancer Center. And uh, what will it take to go from a hobby to a commercial production uh, with these uh, new sort of non-traditional agricultural techniques? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Benny and Kerry, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. Good to be here. All right. Thanks for having me on. Well, you know, so this uh, this idea of... Uh, um, Hydroponics and, and aquaponics, uh, and Benny, I know I know we've had you on before, and we've talked about it, and uh, it's uh, it's something that I think has holds out a lot of hope in terms of uh, a, a new way of, of producing uh, food sources. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, maybe uh, Benny can give us an update. Is it is it sort of moving out of the uh, hobbyist phase or the sort of the research or pilot phase into something a little bit more substantive in terms of uh, commercial production? Well, this issue is brought up uh, many times before, and you just hit it right on the head. And actually, uh, um, this is something that I wanted to bring here, mm-hmm. that um, I just want to warn everybody from the bubble. We don't want it to be a bubble. Uh, we all preach about it. And if you remember, I brought Jim Rikosi already, Dr. Jim Rikosi already in July 2009 to start and talk about it. And we moved on from there to many 
uh, workshops that um, our college in CTAR keep doing workshops and teaching people and helping people and advising people <clears throat> in all levels. Uh, and I'm talking about all levels. Uh, we have to realize we're talking about plants, we're talking about fish, and we're talking about bacteria and everything that in between including the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it's true that more and more people now have big expectations. What about the big system? What about the big production? And I think that we saw along the years uh, people uh, trying it. Some of them fail. Some of them struggle. Some of them still having it. Um, over here on the islands, we have people uh, like uh, you know Fred Lau and others who try to do on a big scale but they, we have to admit one thing. These people, this is not the only thing they live upon. They have diversified agriculture. And I always suggest people, when it comes to the professional part, when they do aquaponics, to diversify. Because we have a sensitive issue of using two major biological systems that are very complex by itself, each of them, which is the plant on one side mm-hmm. and the fish on the other side and the bacteria in the middle. And we have the past looking around to enjoy both. Um, so we have to be very careful and we have to be very knowledgeable. And there are so many variables because this is biology and it includes also engineering. So I would say <coughs> the future might be good, but we are not there yet. Mm. And for the big monoculture plants, I think the hydroponics still win. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Well, um, Carrie, I mean, I, I do want to talk more about aquaponic systems. And I know that um, I think it was at a geek meet some time ago. You had demonstrations. You were kind of showing uh, how the, some of this might work. But, Carrie, tell me about hydroponics. And, in fact, maybe if there is a distinction to make, you could help us understand what that distinction might be. Well, hydroponics is basically the growing of plants in water culture, so without soil. Uh, so there are any varieties of hydroponics. Um, and in Hawaii, for example, we have already, I think, established commercially Mari's Farms uh, or Mari's Gardens, as I've mentioned. Uh, Maize Farm grows hydroponic lettuce. Uh, Waipoli Greens on Maui uh, grows hydroponic lettuce. Both are at Costco. So obviously it can succeed commercially. Um, the variety that I'm testing is called aeroponics, in which case the water solution is actually sprayed uh, and the plants not only don't sit in the solution but and soil, uh, they sit in air and are mm. constantly uh, sprayed with the solution. So hydroponics is basically without soil. And obviously without the soil, uh, you take away some of the variables and um, – uh, lack of control that you might have in those situations. Mm-hmm. And um, specifically without the soil or without that kind of requirement, um, one of the things that you've been exploring, one of the things I've just started to see, uh, even at places like the Institute for Human Services, are something called vertical gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those? Uh, so the concept with vertical gardens is to take these hydroponic techniques and apply them in both a vertical and a horizontal scale. So when you think about a traditional farm, you have acres and acres of, of land, uh, pretty much at one level. Uh, the idea with a vertical farm is is space is scarce, so how can we maximize its productivity? Well, you have to go in the vertical direction. Uh, so the extreme example of that, uh, as they use that term most frequently, uh, is to actually build or create farms inside of skyscrapers. Uh, and the concept is sometime in the future, our farms would be in tall vertical buildings with a very small footprint. Um, but um, even here in Hawaii, uh, just doing these small towers, as you mentioned, uh, is exploring the vertical 
uh, avenue. You know, one of the things that always uh, gets brought up when I tell people, you know, if they're asking me, what are you guys talking about today? And I tell them, you know, we're going to talk about aquaponics and hydroponics. And they almost invariably ask me, well, what does that have to do with technology? And and I'm curious to hear what you both have to say about how uh, technology comes into play with either of these topics. Uh, Benny, maybe you could start because, you know, really, if you're even in agriculture, that's a whole scientific, I think, knowledge base that you need to draw from. But then if you get into aquaponics and, and uh, aquaculture, the technology is obviously there as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I gave one time, uh, I was invited to give a talk to uh, one of the engineering groups at uh, SOIST, the School of Ocean, Air Science, and Technology. And what I told them, guys, uh, basically uh, to have good knowledge and to create system in agriculture and in uh, definitely in aquaculture and aquaponics, your first thing you need to know is uh, plumbing and engineering. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a good plumber uh, because you actually basically move water around. The moment you move water, you need to know good plumbing. You need to understand the techniques and you need to be efficient. And we're talking about always it's the cost. So it's the cost of the engineering that even a decision of uh, do I have an elbow of 90 degrees or 45 degrees going to make a big difference in the end of the day mm-hmm. when you take all the costs together. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's uh, actually when it comes to that, it's a very precise science. Um, it's very predictable. You can actually calculate. You can measure. Uh, when you talk about salinity, when you talk about measurement of pH, uh, measurement of ammonia, uh, measurement of chemistry, basically water chemistry, this is quite precise. So when I said earlier biology have many variables, this is true and sometimes somewhat unpredictable because you also grow bacteria in the system that do the nutrification you know, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is sometimes can be variable and sometimes can be less predictable. Mm-hmm. But when you come to building the stuff, uh, and like you talk about vertical wall, we do it also in aquaponics. You, you basically uh, you have the plants on the outside and the sprinkler on the inside. Uh, where the where the roots are, um, and you can decide to do it in pulses, or you can decide to do it in all sorts of ways in order to cover more area and lo- and use less energy. And we do it both in hydroponics and aquaponics. Mm-hmm. So in both systems, I believe engineering and the precise science must be there. Mm-hmm. And Kerry, I mean, uh, for for a, a vertical system. Uh, if you're using uh, a high-rise, obviously there's not only plumbing, there's lighting and you know just keeping the nutrients uh, consistent on the plants and, of course, uh, keeping it from getting, let's say, uh, rotting out or, or, or any other um, foreign matter that might you know, sort of disrupt the, uh, the growth of, mm-hmm. of the hydroponics. Yeah, especially for the indoor variant of hydroponics, um, technology is a big component. As you mentioned, indoors you almost invariably have to supply some supplemental lighting. And so the technology is there. For example, I, I really didn't look at this seriously as a potential commercial operation until LEDs started to come down in mm-hmm. price. Mm-hmm. And so that advance really said, okay, we can make a light that's fairly low energy usage, uh, put out a frequency or wavelength that the plants can use. So that maybe this is practical. So advances in technology are always going to drive this. Uh, lighting, as you mentioned, cooling. Cooling is going to be a big thing for indoor farming. Um, control systems, uh, labor costs obviously on a farm are typically very high. So as much as you can automate and control uh, with technology, you can reduce your costs there too. Mm-hmm. 
Now we're talking to uh, Kerry Kakazu uh, uh, into vertical hydroponics and and Benny Ron, who's an evangelist for UH in the aquaponics and aquaculture arena. And, of course, uh, if you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call. That number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one 941 3689 We have Dr. Lu on the line from Kailua. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Sure. It's a pleasure to listen to this uh, conversation comparing hydroponics and aquaponics. And just to let Dr. Ron know that you probably know my business partner, Fred Mencher, uh, we belong to Primavera Aquaponics, and mm. as soon as I heard the word vertical aquaponics, I had to call in. Of course. Good. Great. <laughs> now, do you have a question for our esteemed guest here? Yeah. Is I always ask questions from uh, people about the differences between hydroponics and aquaponics. And living here in Hawaii, there's a couple of reasons why aquaponics wins out in my mind com- com- compared to hydroponics. Um, we have this farm, we don't need to grow indoors, so that cuts out all the lighting possibilities. It's very expensive to do hydroponics in my mind. I used to do them when I was a professor at HPU, and we'd buy, you know, kilograms of this chemical, that chemical, and you had to kind of have a chemistry background to mix and weigh and put things together in the right fashion. With aquaponics, you just feed and fish, which is pennies a day, feed the fish, they do the business in the water, that's the plant food. Mm-hmm. And the secret to vertical aquaponics is just uh, pumping the water up with a single small pump pump that's like 5 or $6 per month. And you, we grow seven feet high, and we can grow up to 100 plants in like a three-feet by five-feet area. I think you're bringing up a very good point, and I think we probably um, maybe eventually would have meandered toward that uh, question, which is sort of the, the business angle for let's say, aquaponics versus hydroponics. Uh, Carrie, you know, I think this is something that might be posed, posed for you. I mean, given the fact that hydroponics requires perhaps this artificial elements introduced into the system, how does that affect the bottom line? And, and is it more profitable perhaps to go uh, with, a, with an aquaponic kind of arrangement? Um, well, my opinion is that with the hydroponics, actually the nutrient costs are probably one of the smaller components um, of the operation. Uh, for the kinds of things I'm growing, they aren't very nutrient-intensive. Mm-hmm. So that actually is a small part. As you mentioned, the lighting and the cooling are probably the biggest expenses. So uh, that's where I'm sort of focusing on. Um, on the fish side, I think, as Benny mentioned, you know, the, co- the complexity of perhaps of maintaining both systems if you are trying to market the fish uh, in my mind, makes the hydroponics maybe a little bit easier in that way. Um, obviously, you don't get the free source of nutrients like you do with the fish, but you do have to feed the fish, mm-hmm. and so the food does cost money also. So. And you had mentioned that there are some, there are already some commercial operations in the hydroponic arena, correct? Oh yes. Now, so Benny, for aquaponics, um, uh, I, I, of course, when you first talked about it, I could see in my head I had this fantasy in my backyard where you have a fish tank, you have a uh, high, an aquaponic system growing some lettuce or something, and a little set of pipes going between the fish give off what fish give off the plants can have that and then you keep the fish happy and you can have both and my kids would love it but it did sound very complex and it did sound like that i could end up with dead fish and dead cabbage at the same time for example um where are we in terms of the uh, the home ability maybe the home farmer uh, to use the system or build a system like this of course uh, i believe that you can do it at home and you don't have to be worried about it 
I always, you know, people think uh, things are too complicated. Mm. Uh, but there are professionals who can help you. Uh, you don't fix or clean your, your teeth by yourself. You go to a dentist. And so also in aquaponics or hydroponics, if you want to learn something, I mean, you know, Kerry has a PhD. I mean, he learned a lot. He's <laughs> he a bright guy. <laughs> a lot in understanding the, uh, the engineering, the biology, and everything involved. So if you want to h- help, there are so many people around the islands. You know Glenn Martinez. Mm-hmm. You know others mm-hmm. um, that willing to help. The University of Hawaii, CITAR, uh, our department, other departments are always there. There are so many people. And we have so many workshops all the time. And teaching people, you just have to pick up the phone or go on aquaculturehub.org, and and you meet other five thousand people that they do it. We have the ATOL, the aquaculture training online learning, that we teach people sixteen years and, and above. I mean, mm-hmm. How old are your kids? They can already take <laughs> the ATOL program. I have a sixteen-year-old. Okay, so she, uh, she or he can she, take yeah. the the ATOL already uh, and uh, learn that. So it's not that complicated. Okay. Well, I have to just mention about the, the the fish and the advantage. The advantage is. And this, I'm sorry, Kerry cannot give you that, is the protein, the steak, we can give the steak. So the idea about if a family has aquaponics, you have both the vegetables and you have the protein, which is very important. Another thing is you have to remember that you have to have good vegetables. Not everybody eat lettuce. Mm-hmm. You, you want to have tomatoes and other things. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, throw uh, Kerry uh, uh, something that uh, he can easily answer, which is, is, is hydroponics uniquely, uh, let's say, designed for a particular type of, uh, let's say, uh, crop or produce or, or something that uh, might be a little bit more specialized? Um, yeah, I think hydroponics obviously is the best suited to leafy greens, uh, things with shorter life cycles, especially if you're doing it commercially. I mean, theoretically, you can grow almost anything. Um, but things that are obviously trees would not be very practical. Right. Uh, things that need to be pollinated to get fruits are a little bit tougher. Uh, you know, tomatoes and strawberries are maybe one of the exceptions for uh, fruiting plants that are for hydroponics. But in general, it is uh, leafy things. So mm-hmm. it definitely is a niche market. And um, it's not going to supplant, obviously, a farm, uh, a full uh, a diversified farm for food production, but it's just another way of getting crops that may be hard to grow outdoors or uh, where you need a little bit more control over the environment. And so, certainly if you have um, pests that like leafy things, then that might be a, a benefit there. But, but Benny, I see your passion, and I see that certainly I can have fish with my meal as well, and not just leafy things. You mentioned tomatoes. What else can aquaponics taro, provide? Taro, of course. We are in Hawaii. We want to grow a variety of taro. And uh, in the aquaponics, it's already ruling over there. And I did an experiment with people in American Samoa, Mm -hmm. and we compared uh, growing in the same yard, uh, taro on the ground and and taro on the aquaponic system. There's no comparison. Uh, The the aquaponics in um, – the taro in aquaponics was ruling. was really – it looks so good. It it looks full of nitrogen from the fish. I mean, the fish supply so much goodies. Um, And so actually the people were – um, very happy with aquaponics when it comes to taro. It all comes down to poi, really. Uh, yeah, the bottom line. Poi and fish. I mean, I, I that's can the see, way I, I start can, my morning. That's <laughs> like I can see that with Benny. So I, I think we're you know this is kind of an interesting direction that we're taking the conversation in terms of 
um, you know, just the, just the food quality that you might get as a result of this uh, technology. But uh, we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Benny Ron and Carrie Kakazu about the business of aquaponics and aquaponics. Yes, with business, what are some of the commercial and uh, commercial applications of these technologies and practices? And of course, what does it mean for our food sustainability future? We'd of course love to hear from you as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. The Tiananmen protests 25 years ago were about students and democracy and a little bit more, too. Prices were going up at an average of about 7% a year. In 1988, there was a spike where it was more like 17%. And so that kind of inflation hit hard. I'm Kai Rizdal, 1989 Revisited, next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. The Chris Vandercook Band salutes blues royalty, B.B. King, Albert King, and Freddie King in the Atherton on Saturday, June 14th at 7.30. The show, titled The Three Kings, will feature original hits and new horn arrangements inspired by these blues giants. For tickets, call 955-8821 during business hours or go online at hprtickets.org. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Benny Ron and Kerry Kakazu about technology that can take farming into a new direction. And uh, is this a boutique industry or can it be scaled? And, of course, you can give us a call. The number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, we were talking about the types of uh, special produce that you might grow from hydroponics versus uh, aquaponics. But before we get back into that, we want to welcome Carla from Kona to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, aloha. Hi, welcome to the show. Um, I've got a question on um, Living on Earth. A few months ago, they had a show about, um, the whole hour went to the show about an inland shrimp farming project on the East Coast that was supplying all these very expensive restaurants with this beautiful shrimp. And a guy from Thailand was doing it inland, and the shrimp um, ate the bacteria that they created from their own stuff. Are you familiar with this yes. inland shrimp? <laughs> Benny is nodding, nodding his head in <laughs> affirmation. Benny, well, I want to hear about Could you talk about it a little bit, uh, and I'll get off the phone. Okay, thanks. Wow, great thanks, question. All right. Thank you very much for asking this question. This is one of the things that I'm actually, as we speak, I'm writing a proposal to USDA, and uh, they, we're talking about probably BioFlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is BioFlock technology, and it has to do with the fact that you raise your fish or your shrimp in water when you feed them, uh, basically... You might, you might know that if you feed them with high level of protein in the diet, they grow fast. However, about 70% of the nitrogen is being coming out of the gills and coming out of the urine. And this is ammonia and nitrite. What are you going to do with that? If you get, it's going to go in the affluent, it might be toxic to where it goes. Mm-hmm. If it's going to stay in the pond, it might kill the shrimp or fish. So there's uh, a professor from Israel, uh, Yoram Avnimelahudu, and others who develop this te- technology called BioFlock, by which you add uh, material to the water, which is mostly uh, some sort of uh, a place for the bacteria to sit on, like 
like flour or grounded paper, uh, any kind that um, some sort of oats that the bacteria can sit on and this and create the flock. And then you add sugar like molasses and um, together with the molasses, the shrimp start sequestering the nitrogen that the fish and the shrimp cannot sequester from the water. And they create big colonies of uh, bacteria that eventually those bacteria, those big colonies die. And, you know, some bacteria uh, cycle is already only a few hours. So you have huge, huge uh, capacity for bacteria to grow big colonies. And those colonies actually host in them, sequestering the nitrogen that was depleted from the gills and the urine. And actually, now the fish and shrimp can recognize those flocks because they're big enough, and they can actually eat them again. So this is sequestering the nitrogen in the water. And that's probably what you're talking about. And it creates, it's like a big boom in the industry. It's all over the place now. Well, because I remember, I mean, I think I had heard, as we're thinking more about our sustainable future and, and our sources of protein, for example, um, I think it was said that shrimp was one of the things that because of the all of the resources made to raise shrimp, they were actually kind of one of the worst things to kind of look for in terms of uh, your uh, – you know, in terms of protecting the environment. Um, I'm looking up the Living on Earth segment and it talks about a book called The Perfect Protein by Andy Sharpless. And he basically says, you got to swear off shrimp because there's no way to get a shrimp and feel good about what you're doing to the environment. No, 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 no. But it sounds like this is the solution. We over this thing. And by the way, number one seafood in the United States is shrimp. If you're going to look at your computer, you're going to find out. All right. So does the um, water that the shrimp live in have to be transferred somehow transported outside? No, you just you just bubble it with a lot of air to make sure that it is aerobic and not anaerobic. Uh-huh, uh-huh, if, as long uh-huh, as you uh-huh. stay aerobic, and this brings me to the next point that you might want to talk about technology, the latest stuff that I'm doing to these days with, with Glenn Martinez is the airlift pump. You might want to know how to do that and use it, Gary. Air- <laughs> airlift pump. Okay. We use so little energy, uh-huh. you cannot believe uh-huh. Uh, with a little pump of th- uh, 35 watts, you can just move water. Because the major issue, as I said before, is how to move water around. In any aquaculture system, in any aquaponics and hyd- hydroponics, mm-hmm. you need to move water. Moving water is very expensive, guys. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a high energy cost for moving water. I mean, there are two things that usually cost a lot. is the feed or the nutrients and then moving water around. And how we do that. And how we pressurize it and so forth and so forth. So I guess you're not talking about the uh, old aquarium pump that I had 20 years ago? Well, you might find that it might be the same principle. You'll be Mm. surprised that those pumps that have uh, collaboration of moving the water, it's actually one of the latest stuff we are using again. So, you know, hold on and keep this pump going (laughs) because it's important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, For real, you know, we were in American Samoa. And we were working, Glenn, Glenn Martinez and I, and we were working there. And suddenly somebody said, oh, well, you know, uh, my fish, I have to put them in the ground very deep over there. So how are we going to take the water out? We usually use water pump. And then there was a school over there. And we said, oh, we're going to have electric pump in the water and all that. And the kids can get electrified, you know, taking all this. And then we met another lady over there. She said, I can't put a pump outside. The neighbor might like it. And I'm not going to fight with them. I want my pump next to my TV. Like, What? your water pump next to your TV, but the fish is over there. But we said we used an air pump, and the air pump to the day is sitting next to her TV and humming, and she loves it. <laughs> and we have a water hose goes all the way out to the fish tank, and we organized an airlift system, and we moved the water with the airlift system with energy that maybe is less than a quarter that we 
would to use, and uh, you have to remember, if you have, as I said, engineering and plumbing, if you're going to have a pump in the water, it's just a matter of time until this pump is going to go dead mm-hmm. because you have particles coming in and grinding you know, sand and stuff, and it's going to grind the, the pump. We talk about technical stuff. I mean, nobody invented a pump that will be forever. Mm-hmm. However, you can have a pump outside the water already. You don't have to worry about these water problems mm-hmm. that you're going to have in the pump. And it's a little diaphragm that you can just change. So that's, go ahead. That's incredible. I'm glad that uh, that technology still has an application. And, uh, and as to the earlier uh, caller, I certainly will feel less guilty now when I do order my uh, shrimp as well. Now, Carrie, um, for the challenges that you're facing, um, and, you, and we have uh, kind of mentioned earlier that there are sort of commercial operations, I, I, I am really curious about um, for the specific and specialized uh, crops or or uh, environments that you're working in, what is the most successful? What is the most efficient in terms of turning into something that is a sustainable business Mm -hmm. for hydroponic? Um, Well, yeah, again, the scale that I'm operating at right now, it's a pretty small scale. Uh, It would have to be the sort of specialty crops that um, maybe targeting the restaurant market. Uh, So very high end where they would need a specific kind of quality, uh, crops that you couldn't grow easily outdoors, for example, I'm right now trying out this uh, new plant, or at least new to Hawaii. Uh, it's called the edible ice plant, or sometimes called glacier lettuce. And it actually grows better and tastes better if you add salt to the hydroponic solution. And you need about 1% to 1.5% salt. And so you can imagine if you have to apply that to your field, that would just trash your field. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So here's an ideal application of hydroponics. And um, it's used in high-end restaurants. You can get a pretty good price for it. And really, practically speaking, probably you could only do it in a greenhouse or hydroponic-type operation. So those are the kind of crops that are probably target right now. So uh, how would you describe the stage of your business right now? Is it sort of in the startup mode? Mm-hmm. Are you, uh, yeah, Obviously, you've, you've got a building that you're implementing, your vertical uh, hydroponic system. Uh, maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've been in this space. Uh, it's right in the middle of Kaka'ako. Um, uh, second floor of a warehouse building, and it. Uh, I've been there about a year now. So mm-hmm. the first year has been sort of getting in there, building up some systems, trying out different technologies to see what works best. And so I'm right at the stage now to start expanding and see if I can get enough systems going to do this commercially. I have a couple of in- uh, restaurants that are interested in trying out some of the crops. I brought some samples of the ice plant, uh, the lettuces, Microgreens, again, is another high-end product mm-hmm, that grows yeah. nicely hydroponically. So these are the things I'm targeting right now. Uh, probably also look at some Asian vegetables to go to the sushi bars with. Mm-hmm. What do you see as being uh, perhaps the uh, the growth trajectory? Do you see st- uh, sort of a boutique operations in Kaka'ako, or do you see perhaps taking over uh, you know, a 30-foot tower somewhere and, and growing hydroponics. Uh, yeah, I think so hopefully somewhere in between. Uh, right now, what I'm seeing with a small scale, obviously, is uh, I had to start small to do the uh, pilot project. Um, but obviously, there's some economy of scale. So I think there's going to be a size that you have to be to make it worth the cost of the energy that's uh, necessary to put in. Mm-hmm. Um, the very large scale operations, again, you know, I, I, I look at uh, right now this Kunia Country Farms that grows uh, lettuces aquaponically, and they supply food land. And they specifically had to get a large size, do it outdoors, to be at a price point that they thought was competitive. So I don't think this kind of farming can compete at that level Mm -hmm. for that kind of commodity crop. But again, 
for the high-end specialty uh, restaurants, it's probably a viable solution. Mm-hmm. In the long term, if and I definitely want to see about how can we contribute to food security for Hawaii, sustainable farming, et cetera. Um, obviously, we have to look a lot more at the different kinds of technologies, apply renewable energy to get those costs down to make it practical for the larger scale. Now, Benny, um, for for aquaponics, it is clear that this is something that you do um, out of passion, out of love. You come from a long line of farmers, from what I understand. So um, um, feeding your family, feeding the planet is something that comes naturally. But uh, And so you might help me set up an aquaponics system in my yard. Sure. But I, I, I am kind of curious. Uh, when people think of business opportunities, and is this a system that somebody would even pursue doing something like this to become – to do uh, a small backyard farm the way they might show up at a at a farmer's market and start that way is is aquaponics something that uh, a beginner might uh, explore? Well, I think yeah. I mean, you know, Kerry mentioned specialty. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is specialty. You, uh, the idea is to come and and uh, educate people and bring forward the fact that you can have special product that come from fish pool. Oh, you know, but it's basically when you talk about recycling. When you talk about sustainability, you might find a niche in the market, uh, like Carla and other other people. They will say, "Oh, we specifically want to buy from aquaponics because we know that we actually kind of save the planet, or whatever you want to call it." Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's also a philosophy behind it. The other thing is you learn that basically you can have both protein and carbohydrates, and you might even oil, depending on what you what you're going to grow. And and this is something that there's a component that I think that your family need and others is what we call it. They used to call it STEM. I would like to call it STEAM and add uh, to, to the STEM the A for agriculture or aquaculture. Ah, and, okay, people say yeah. STEAM and I think for we, art. we should <laughs> even call it hot STEAM. Hot for, STEAM. Yeah. So for uh, hands-on training STEAM. So yeah. when you teach the s- children in school how to work with biological systems and how to get them into engineering also, because plumbing is engineering and pumps and moving water and moving air and measuring uh, chemistry, for the teachers, the science teacher, it should be heaven now. And it is because mm-hmm. many science teachers now are very drawn into aquaponics because they, they can tell the kids, oh, you didn't understand that? Get out of the class. We go to look at the aquaponic system. You take your pencil and your board and you write things and you ask questions. And we go back to, to, to the classroom and then we start thinking how we solve this right, issue. Right, applied learning, project learning. And, and we, when you keep talking about the protein and, and the match between fish and poi, I can see, well, why don't you get fish and poi that came from the same system so that they're even more I- aligned? I can see that doing very well at uh, Whole, Food Mar- Whole Food Market or something like that. Now, you know, Benny, you began uh, this uh, conversation about how perhaps uh, we're not quite at that point of being uh, in the commercial production mode. Um, I'm kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are on what are what does Hawaii need to do to get to another level of production with either of these types of systems? I know you guys are business people. You want to, you know, you, you want to make money doing what you're doing. I mean, how does... Hawaii's environment, uh, what does it need, what needs to happen in order for you to be successful? I, I think first thing is we need to think of the efficiency, how to make things efficient. We need to think about how we're going to, like as I said, transfer the water, transfer the energy, use the resources to make everything more efficient. Uh, we don't have to take a whole lot of, uh, you know, 100 or, or 200 acres. Uh, if we're smart enough, 
uh, what Kerry was talking about, what we already call it the China Wall. Uh, we, we build like a triangle of walls um, and we sprinkle inside and the fish are actually in the dark in between the, the system and you can run that. And so because only the roots need the water and you have to remember the plants need the sun and you can rotate actually and you can always find the sun if you do it in the right way. So there are so many ways um, to think about the efficiency and I think we need to collaborate. We need to collaborate with uh, engineering. We need to collaborate with uh, geneticists because you need to find the right crop, the right growth, both of plants and fish. Um, and we need also to look for ways to do it with seawater. So we mm. never heard yet on aquaponics in seawater. Mm -hmm. uh, Kerry just mentioned, hey, you add salinity. The moment you said salinity, I said, why don't you put a fish <laughs> <laughs> in salt water? But, but we need to also try to figure out ways to do it in salt water and grow algae because the kids need iodine. It's good for the brain. It's important for the different oils in the, in the algae. There are many components. So our islands, if they're going to put their mind together, and more and more people uh, are going into agriculture from the point in aquaculture from the point of view of entrepreneurs less as farmers uh -huh, uh -huh. and I, th I I see the future absolutely where can where can people find a little bit more information real quick Benny of your systems and then and the next carry where can people find so Benny where can oh you go to aquaculturehub.org okay it's one of the biggest networks in the world and it's for free. And we have people from all over, and we have we teach also the ATOL, the Aquaculture Training Online Learning, and you can find it, the information over there. And, of course, where I'm at, at the Human Nutrition, Food, and Animal Science, we have over seven courses only on fish and shrimp and so forth. And CITAR itself has other uh, people who teach us uh, aquaculture and aquaponics. And right. Kerry? Uh, yeah, my website is uh, www.metrogrowhawaii.com. I uh, also have a Facebook page, uh, Facebook dash uh, or slash Metro Grow Hawaii. And there's some resources there, links to other farms that are in business. Uh, my email is there if you want to contact me about uh, the poss possibilities of hydroponics. Fantastic. Sounds good. Well, Benny, Ron, Spearheads, UH's aquaponics program. And Kerry, of course, uh, Metro Grow has a vertical farm starting up in Kaka'ako. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Yeah, thanks a lot for the opportunity. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll take another mission to Mars with the High Seas program. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Of course, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And I'm at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chang and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Joanna Molina and a song called Eras. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.